you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the resurrection chapter. We'll start with verse 13, and then we'll skip a few verses and pick it up again in verse 19. 1 Corinthians 15, 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. Verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Father, everything that we stand for as a church, every hope that we have when a loved one passes, every time that we breathe a prayer toward heaven, God, every time that we sense the relief that guilt has been washed that sin has been forgiven, that restoration of fellowship has been granted. Father, we know today that if there was no resurrection, then God, it's meaningless. This service is pointless. We are deceived, we're deluded, we're fanatics that stand for a cause that is empty. God, we are so grateful today that our faith it does not rest on our performances. God, it doesn't rest on our feelings or our emotions. God, those things are important. We are to give our lives as living sacrifices. God, we are to worship you with all of our soul and with all of our heart. But God, when those things wane, when our feelings are not aligning and when our emotions are discouraged and we are critical, God, we then have to rely on the fact that Jesus Christ conquered the grave, that sin has been destroyed, the devil has been defeated, and our resurrection is inevitable, and our loved ones, we will be united and we will be with them forever in a place that Jesus prepared for us. God, thank you that our faith rests on historical, verifiable evidence that we can live, we can pray, we can worship with absolute certainty and confidence. And God, when we do that, the performances will follow out of love. The emotions will follow out of joy, and the feelings will be real because they're generated with fact and not fiction. 
we thank you and we praise you for all of these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So this, uh, this week I tried to study as a historian would, and so this will be a little bit different from my normal preaching. It's not going to be expositional. It won't be verse by verse. Um, it will be a topic, and the topic, of course, is the resurrection. But I wanted to approach it from an apologetic um, standpoint, because our faith, your faith, is going to be constantly under attack. And we can no longer in America assume that people will believe the Christian message because we say it's found in the Bible. We can't assume that people will respect us when we say, I know that Jesus lives. And the hymn writer wrote, and, and it's very, very true for every one of us, and every one of us can identify with the hymn writer who said, you ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. And that's very, very true and very, very real. But the problem is if you took that to a lost skeptic or a lost atheist or a lost Buddhist, he would say the exact same thing. I know what I believe because it's in my heart and it's real for me. And so today, I think more than ever, we need to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that's in us with meekness and fear. One of my favorite debaters is a man named William Lane Craig, and he went to a university in Canada and gave all the arguments, the classical arguments for the existence of God, the teleological argument, the cosmological argument, the moral argument. And the audience was following along and saying, yes, these are credible evidences. And then he got to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then the audience began to push back. Because the resurrection makes it personal. The resurrection makes it objective, no longer subjective, because all the gods that you want and all the gods that you have, they can make you feel good, and they can serve you. But the God of the Bible, we have to humble ourselves and come before him and acknowledge that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh and that Jesus Christ took my sin and he nailed it to a cross and that Jesus Christ rose again the third day to authenticate every single claim that he ever made, and that Christianity is the only true God. And in a culture that we're living in today, that is politically incorrect as you can get. But folks, there is no hope for anyone outside of Jesus Christ. And it is not loving to simply say, you have your beliefs and I have my beliefs and we're all going to get along. That is the most unloving thing that you can tell someone. You see, God is not a mountain with all different paths leading to him. No, God is absolutely holy and God is absolutely just. 
And God cannot have sin in his presence because of his holiness. And that's why Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because at that moment, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 was fulfilled. Jesus Christ became sin for us, the one who knew no sin, in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. A historian will look for two things, especially things in antiquity. He will look for multiple eyewitnesses, and he will look for early dates of manuscripts and testimonies. And the Bible, out of any historical event in antiquity, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has more evidence than any other event that has ever happened in the past with those two things multiple eyewitnesses, and early manuscript evidence of the historical fact that Jesus Christ was not in the grave early Sunday morning. In fact, we have creeds that predate the Bible. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6, we have an early creed that non Christian scholars agree and admit that this was written somewhere between 30 and 35 A.D. For I received of the Lord, Paul said, that which I delivered unto you. This is a creed. I received of the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that Jesus Christ died according to the Scriptures. He was buried And he rose again according to the scriptures. Paul is quoting a creed and he's writing this letter in 54 to 53 AD. We know that Paul was in the city of Corinth at 51 AD. Now how do we know that? We know it from Luke's writings. Luke was an impeccable historian. And Luke writes in chapter 18 of the book of Acts that Gallio was the governor of Achaia. And fortunately for us, we have archaeological evidence that have found the Gallio stone, and it's dated to 51 A.D. So Paul was preaching the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection to the Corinthians in 51 A.D. He's quoting a creed that goes back to 35 A.D., and he says that I, first of all, got this gospel from the apostles. He says, I went up to Jerusalem, and the Greek verbs is heristesi, where we get the word history. It's translated in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 18. It says, I went up to see Peter. But it's the word history. I went to get a history. I went to get a narrative of all the events that I missed out on because I was a latecomer. And so we've got a list of multiple eyewitnesses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've got the 12. We've got James. And James is significant because he's not one of the apostles. Look at verse 7 with me of 1 Corinthians 15, if you're still there. After that, he was seen by James. And then by all the apostles. That tells me that this is not James the apostle. This is James, none other than the brother of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that significant? 
James adds all kind of difficulties to the skeptics, to the atheists, to the naysayers that the resurrection did not happen. Why is it so important that James is included here? Because James, his own brother, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. The Bible gives us many, many accounts where his brothers thought Jesus was insane. Mark chapter 3, verse 21, when the multitudes began to crowd around Jesus, they said, our brother has slipped a cog. Let's go and find him, let's go bring him home, and let's sedate him. Let's put him in a rubber room, because he has blown it. He's gone off the rail. That's what his brothers thought of him. At the Feast of Tabernacles, John chapter 7, Jesus is performing miracles, and his brothers say to him, go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. That's one of the annual feasts for all the Judeans. Everybody's going to be there. And no one who wants to be known openly does these miracles in secret. Go show yourself off at the Feast of Tabernacles. And then John chapter 7 verse 5 says this, Because his brothers did not believe in him. What would change James into the leading pastor of the Jerusalem church who in 65 A.D. was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple and then stoned to death, as Josephus tells us. Why would you make a 180-degree turn? He knew Jesus Christ was alive. He appeared to James. James is listed at that prayer meeting in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. He was there with Mary and the brothers of Jesus. Jesus came and revealed himself to James. That is so significant for us today. That's a historical fact. The book of Galatians is what we're going through on Sunday morning, expositionally, verse by verse. And it was written before the Jerusalem Council. It was probably written in 48 A.D. Now, in this letter, Paul chronicles the time of his conversion, up until the point of this letter. He tells us that he took a relief fund up to the city of Jerusalem because there was famine in all of Judea at that time. He said that was 14 years after he spent three years in the Arabian desert, after Christ appeared to him. That's where you need to go to seminary. Not to some Bible school. You need to go out to the desert and get alone with God with a Bible. That's the best Bible training you're ever going to get. And that's what Paul did. So that makes 17 years. Paul wrote the Galatian letter in 48. Minus 17, what's that come out to? 31 A.D. We are getting pretty darn close to the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When did Jesus Christ die? He died in 29 AD. Now, how do we know that? Again, Luke is so important. Luke is our historian that we go to. Luke chapter 3 and verse 1, Jesus began his ministry in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and Jesus being about 30 years of age. We know from John's gospel that Jesus' ministry lasted three years because he went to three Passovers before he was crucified. So if Jesus began his ministry in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when was his first year? 
That's what we got to know. Roman records tell us that he was the co-regent with Caesar Augustus in 11 A.D. You add 15 years now into his reign, it's 26 A.D. Jesus Christ died and was crucified, rose again in 29 A.D. Now, what was Paul doing between 29 A.D. and 31 A.D.? He was enraged, wasn't he? He was extremely adamant of destroying the Christian message. He did not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ for two reasons. One, he was a Pharisee and he was the son of a Pharisee. He was raised up at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the chief rabbi of all of Jerusalem. Josephus wrote this about Gamaliel. When Josephus died, the law died with him. This is who Paul was. This is his psyche. He is a rigid Pharisee, part of the group that nailed Jesus to the cross and wanted to destroy this message because Jesus was defying all the traditions, all the laws, because a man is not justified by the law, but man is justified in faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that got Paul hot. I've been keeping the law my whole life, and you're telling me it's not good enough? I've been keeping all the doctrines, I've been doing all the right things, and I am not saved? Uh Uh-uh. I'm going to kill every Christian. The other thing that infuriated the Apostle Paul was that Jesus Christ was taught that he was Yahweh. That's blasphemy. How do I know that he believed that he was Yahweh? Because in Romans chapter 10, Paul quotes another pre-creed to the writing of the letter of Romans. Paul wrote this, if you will believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For the same God over all is rich unto all who call upon him. And then Paul quotes Joel chapter 2 and verse 32. For it is written, whoever calls upon the name of Yahweh. That's powerful. The early Christian church did not develop its Christology in the 3rd century. It did not develop its Christology in the 4th century. At the very onset of Christianity, they believed that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh. Thomas said this at the resurrection. He says, you are my Lord and you are my God. What radically changed these Jews It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The disciples, they were so dejected. On Friday night, I was up on the canal road, and I was going for a a little bit of a jog, exercise run, and I finished my run, and there was nobody there. And the sun was setting over the Great Salt Lake and all the marsh and all that stuff out there, and it was just absolutely beautiful. And I got to thinking, it's 8 o'clock in the evening. The sun is setting on a Friday. 
Jesus had been laying in the grave since 3 o'clock that afternoon. Five hours watching the sun set on every hope, every aspiration, everything that you were living for, gone. Until Sunday morning when the sun was coming up, the Son of God was coming. I walked around to get into my car, and there was a couple sitting there watching the sunset. And I just began a conversation with them. And I says, isn't this beautiful? I says, but you know what today is? And they said, Friday. I says, does that mean anything to you? And they said, no. I says, this is the Friday that 2,000 years ago a man named Jesus was nailed to a cross because of your sin and because of my sin. I says, but the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ rose again. And I looked in my car to see if I had a gospel of John, and I'd given them all away, so I talked to the lady, and I says, do you have a gospel? Do you have a Bible? She says, yes, we do. I says, would you consider reading the gospel of John and finding more about who Jesus Christ is? Because he was one of the disciples who lived with him, and he loved him. And he said, Jesus did so many miracles that if you were to write them, the world itself could not contain the books. And she went, wow. I said, that's real. That's who he is. I says, but the important thing is he wrote those things so that you would know that he is the Christ and that by believing you can have eternal life in his name. And she says, is that real? I says, yes, go home and find your Bible. You see, it didn't end on Friday. Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus. He was walking with two disciples. He came up alongside of them and he says, why are you so sad? Why are you so downcast? They looked at Jesus as if he was a lunatic and he says, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? This is Passover. This guy, Jesus, has been rocking the world. He's been feeding 5,000s of people. He's been walking on water. He's been talking to wind. And it stops blowing. And we thought he was the Messiah. He was a prophet mighty of God and mighty in deeds. And it's the third day since he's been dead. And we've lost all hope. You see, a dead Messiah was no use to a Jewish person who was waiting for the deliverance of Israel. The Jewish people would have given up all hope that Christ was the Messiah unless they saw him the third day alive. They would have never died for a lie that they had propagated. It would have never happened. The effects of Jesus' resurrection have no explanation other than that Christ was risen from the dead. The first one that I want to talk about today, that was my introduction, by the way. <laughs> the f- I'm not going to get through this sermon, okay? I'm not going to try to. Jesus' disciples were radically transformed. That's the first circumstantial evidence that you've got to explain it. Why were these men radically changed, radically transformed? 
They were so fearful after the crucifixion of Jesus. They were so fearful in the garden. Peter, when they asked a little girl, said, Are you one of his disciples? The apostle Peter, the stone, Cephas, he began to curse. He says, I don't even know the man. That's the disciple. What transformed him to a bold lion that stood to the same Sanhedrin that nailed his Lord to the cross and said, I will tell you this. He said, filled with the Holy Spirit, he began to speak to them. And this is what he said within 50 days after the, the, the crucifixion and resurrection. He says, if this day I be judged by the good deed on this helpless man, by which means he has been made well, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected of you builders. He has become the chief cornerstone. Neither is salvation in any other, for no other name under heaven is given among men whereby they must be saved. And they looked at Peter and John and James and marveled at their boldness and said, these guys are untrained, uneducated men. But they had taken notice that they had been with Jesus. What a transformation. What a change in their life had been wrought since Jesus came into their heart. Oh, I got too many notes. I'm going to have to just... Ignore them. That's the best thing to do. Okay. The second bit of evidence. I do want to quote a professor. His name is Simon Greenfield. And the reason he's important, he's a professor of law at Harvard University. And he is a world-renowned scholar on the rules of legal evidence. And this is what he said. Not a, not a Christian but just an objective observer of the testimony of Jesus Christ. He said it is impossible, quote, that they could have perished or persisted in affirming the truths that they had narrated had not Jesus actually risen from the dead and had they not known this fact as a certainty as they know any other fact. So that's, just, that's one circumstantial evidence. The second circumstantial evidence is that Jesus' disciples remain loyal even though they're victorious Messiah had been crucified. Now, you think about how fickle people are. <laughs> I don't know if you've watched the ratings of President Biden, but they've, they've sort of plummeted, haven't they? And even some of the Democrats who were hailing him, they're not so happy anymore. When we have a person who promises to deliver certain things, and when those expectations are not met, we pretty quickly start looking for a new Messiah, don't we? That's human nature. They let us down. They didn't keep what they said they were going to do. And they look for somebody else. What explains the disciples when their Messiah had promised to deliver and was crucified? Yet they did not abandon all of their hopes. They retained their cause, and they believed that he was the only one who could forgive sin. Now, Gamaliel, he knew this. 
He knew that if you killed a Messiah, a would-be Messiah, that you could just give it enough time and the whole thing would blow over. And so when they arrested the apostles, they thought about just killing them as well. And Gamaliel says, "Uh uh-uh, we will make things twice as bad if we do that. He says, I've got some advice for you. And he named two would-be messiahs that were put to death, and after their death, the whole thing disbanded. And this is what Gamaliel said. They were furious. They plotted to kill these guys. One of the councils stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people. He commanded to put the apostles aside for a little while, and he said to them, what are you tending to do regarding these men? They said, we want to kill them. He says, no, 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 don't do that. For some time ago, a man named Theodius, he rose up claiming himself to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined with him, and he was slain. Everybody who obeyed him was scattered, and it just came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up during the time of the census and the taxation. He drew many people away from him. He was put to death, and the whole thing dispersed. So men, I say to you, keep away from these men. For if this plan and if this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you be found to fight against God. Maybe he should have killed those apostles because for 2,000 years, the Christian message is still going forward. That's the second bit of circumstantial evidence. A third circumstantial evidence is the the exemplary character of these disciples. To declaim the disciples preached obvious lies and that he deluded people into dying for the world's greatest farce. One would first have to find credible evidence to challenge the character of the disciples. Also, these men were devout Jews who knew if they worshipped a false god that they would be violating the second commandment and would be guilty and be stoned to death. Lastly, such an egregious lying would conflict with the very character of the men and women who the New Testament describes them, and as other biblical writers describe them, such as Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger wrote a letter to Trajan the Emperor, and he says, I cannot explain the character the moral value and the moral fiber of these people. He says, they get up early on the morning on the first day of the week. They chant these songs unto a man called Jesus who they believe is God. When I arrest them and I torture them, their obstinacy is that they will not deny Jesus as Lord and they refuse to worship you, Trajan, as the emperor. For this they must be put to death. To say that these men were liars doesn't stand. Fourth circumstantial evidence. They changed the day of worship within one generation from a 2,000-year-old tradition. You know how hard traditions are to die? They don't go away, do they? And if we had a tradition for 2,000 years and all of a sudden we said we're not going to worship on Saturday 
we're going to worship on the first day of the week. You'd better give me a good reason. And the good reason that they had was because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. They stopped celebrating Passover and started celebrating a communal meal every week. They stopped all the Old Testament rituals of circumcision, said that they are no longer important, and instead, every convert went through the initiation rite, the church ordinance of believers' baptism, pronouncing to the world that I am dead with Christ and I am raised again to walk in the newness of life. The fifth circumstantial evidence providing evidence for the resurrection, it was reported by women. Now, we know in the first century, women's testimony was not even considered credible. And yet, every one of the gospel narratives tell us that women were at the tomb early in the morning. The men had forsaken Christ. It was the women who was at the cross. And when the women came back and reported to the apostles, we have seen Jesus, the grave is empty, the men who were going to build the church on their testimony, this is what was said about them. The women's words seemed like idle tales. Every historian says this would have never been put in the Gospels unless it was actual fact. I have two more circumstantial evidences, but... I don't have time to go there, so I'm going to get to the meat of what all of this is really about, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are four things that will impact your life today that will change you forever, change you forever because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first, every claim that Jesus ever made is vindicated by the resurrection. Jesus was asked when he was cleansing the temple, Who are you? What authority do you have to do this? The apostles remembered a verse about the Messiah that says the zeal of the Lord's house has eaten him up. This is my father's house making himself equal to God. What authority do you have? He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. If Jesus Christ had stayed in the grave, every one of his claims would have been thrown out the window. But Jesus said this to Martha at the graveside of her brother, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And he turned to Martha and he says, Do you believe this? And she said, Yes, Lord, I believe. So every one of Jesus' claims has been vindicated. Number two, what can I take home today from this? I no longer have to fear death. Death is our enemy. The grave no longer can hold you and I. When we go to the funeral of a believer in Jesus Christ, we don't sorrow as others who have no hope. Our God is alive. 
For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. That's you and I. We're the children. We partake of this human frailty. Jesus himself likewise took part of the same. Why? So that through his death, he might defeat him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver those from fear of bondage who all their lifetime fear death. Because of the resurrection, you and I do not have to fear old age. We don't have to fear the diagnosis that says you're terminal. We can look forward to it with joy and hope and victory. Number three, you and I have complete forgiveness. Everything that we could not do in our flesh Christ completed it in full for you and I. Romans chapter 4 and verse 25 says this, Jesus was delivered up for our offenses. He was raised again for our justification. But it doesn't end there. Because of the resurrection, Jesus can put together broken lives. Marriages that are strained. Habits that you just can't get rid of. A foul mouth that you just don't know how to change. Lusts and passions and anger and all the things that you wish you could get rid of, you can by the power of the resurrection. Why? Because Jesus came to take away the sin of the world, and in him there is no sin. For he that sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. You and I can live and walk in victory because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You and I are no longer slaves to our habits. Praise God. I'm no longer a slave to my temper. I'm no longer a slave to lust. I'm no longer a slave to the things of this world that can never satisfy me. Knowing that Christ being raised from the death, death no more has dominion over him. For in that he died, he died once and for all to sin. And he lives forever unto God. And Paul says this, because of that, he says, likewise, this is for you, is what he's saying, likewise, you reckon. That's a good Georgia word. (laughs) Reckon, I reckon so. (laughs) It means to logically count all the things I've just said about Jesus as a part of your life. I want you to think of yourself to be dead unto sin and alive unto God. Sin shall no longer have dominion over you and I. What are the four things that we can take away today? Number one, every promise that Jesus Christ has given in the Bible, that he is the bread of life, that he is the way, that he is the truth, that he is the true vine, that if he offers living water to you and you'll never thirst again because of the resurrection, every one of those promises you can stand and live on. Secondly, every one of your sins have been forgiven. They've been all nailed to the cross. 
Thirdly, you no longer have to fear death because he will rise again and you will rise with him. I mean, he has risen again and you will rise with him. And fourthly, sin is not your master. This is why we celebrate the resurrection. And so I just invite you today. I invite you to come to know Jesus Christ. Many of you I don't know personally. Some of you are visitors today. And I'm going to invite you today to ask Jesus Christ to come into your life. I'm going to ask you today that if you would, just say, I am a sinner. And I want to turn from my sin. And I want to turn to Jesus. I know he can forgive me because he's alive. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. If you're a follower of Jesus today, and you've been living in slavery, and sin has been your master, I want to tell you today, you no longer have to live under the slavery of sin. It's not your boss. Jesus Christ is your boss. And the Holy Spirit lives in your heart, and he will give you victory over sin. So let's pause together right now, and I'm going to lead us in a couple of prayers. Father, I know a prayer doesn't save anybody. But God, today somebody might have been convinced that, yes, Jesus Christ really is risen from the dead. These apostles, these brothers, these women... There's no other explanation that Jesus Christ is alive, that Jesus Christ can forgive sin. There is no memorial at Jesus' tomb because the body is not there. Lord God of today, if someone would just simply say, Jesus, I don't know what all of this means, but I want to confess with my mouth today that Jesus Christ is the creator and Lord of the universe. And I want to trust him to forgive me of my sin. I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. God, if a believer's here today and he's struggling or she's struggling with habitual sin in their life, God, today on Easter Sunday, may this be the day that they realize I am no longer chained to sin. It is no longer my master. Jesus Christ was crucified and he buried and defeated my sin and I am raised together with Christ to walk in the newness of life. I'm going to have victory. I'm going to have fellowship with other believers. I'm going to be part of a community of Christians that worship and praise the name of Jesus. Lord, today we want to say we love you, Lord, because you first loved us and gave your life for us a sweet aroma, a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. And Lord, today we want to live our lives unto you as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto you, which is our only reasonable form of worshiping you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.